Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. Our guest once again on the show is Lewis Marcos, Professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas in the States, where he teaches classical and English literature. He's a C.S. Lewis scholar and the author of Lewis Agonistes, How C.S. Lewis Can Train Us to Wrestle with the Modern and Postmodern World. This time, though, he's with us once again to continue our occasional series on Greek tragedy. We're looking at how the great Greek tragedies point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, for surely they do. This time, we're looking, I think this is one of my favourite Greek plays, Lewis. Um, I just reread it um, to, to prepare for this interview. I thought it was fabulous. Uh, it's a play by Aeschylus, another play by Aeschylus called Prometheus Bound. Lewis, hi. Welcome from the States. Hey, thanks, Brent. It's great to be back on, always talking about one of my favorite subjects, Greek mythology. Well, we love to have you talking about Greek mythology and particularly how it points to Jesus. Now, we dealt with this in the first podcast on the Oristar, but can we just briefly go back and tell folk who was Aeschylus? Ah, okay. Now, he was, in the 5th century BC, there are the three great playwrights, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides. Sophocles is most famous, of course, for Oedipus and Antigone. Euripides wrote things like the, the Bacchae and Medea, but Aeschylus is the grandfather of all of them. He's a little bit older than Sophocles, about a generation older than Euripides, but he really starts things off. And from what we know about Greek tragedy, it started more as a sort of dance, uh, that, that people were doing dances and chants in honor of the god Dionysus, who's one of these dying and rising gods. His life is linked to the cycle of the grape. And it started, we, we believe, with that focus. But then later on, and if you think about it, you've probably seen choral pieces like this where they're singing songs, but then there's a speaker who is like, I remember hearing one where the person was reading famous quotes from Abraham Lincoln, and then they would sing, or, or maybe think of somebody reading the days of creation and then having choral, something like that. So they're, they're still dancing, they're chanting, but now we've got a narrator telling us the story of Dionysus. Then we think later on they expanded to tell the stories of other gods and other heroes. But in the beginning, it was just the chorus chanting and moving rhythmically and a narrator telling the story. And somebody named Thespis, we don't have any of his plays, but we know that Thespis caused a revolution when he added an actor. So now we have the narrator, we have an actor who can interact with the chorus. And that's where our word thespian comes from, because Thespis, in a sense, invented the first actor. But we don't really get tragedy until Aeschylus comes along and gives us a second actor. That is as big a deal as when silent movies became sound movies. Because once you have two actors, there's now drama. They can interact with each other. And because there's often a leader of the chorus, sometimes those two actors can interact with the leader of the chorus. Now, along comes Sophocles and adds a third actor. And believe it or not, Greek tragedies never had more than three actors, at least no more than three actors on the stage at the same time. And you can see that starkness in the Prometheus Mount. By the time he writes the Oristia, it is late enough that it's got the three actors. But in Prometheus Bound, it's just Prometheus interacting with people like Hermes. So very stark. The closest to it would be an opera or maybe better yet, what's called kebuki. 
the no theater of Japan, where it's very, uh, what's it? It's very uh, slow moving and and, and almost uh, pageant like. Uh, so again, Aeschylus is really inventing drama, and we need to remember something: that only in Greece did we get drama, and only in Athens. So they had no drama in Sparta or Thebes or Corinth or any of the other places. It is an Athenian invention. Later on, it moved to Rome and other places, but they started it. And without Aeschylus, you know, we don't really have the real birth of tragedy as dramatic. Are these really a fabulous plays? I've, I've loved them since I was a student at university where I studied Greek tragedy. We better talk a little bit about the Dionysian festivals or the Bacchic festivals, Dionysus, Bacchus, I think he, he became by the time he got to Rome. But to what extent were these tragedies tied up with goats and with the song of a scapegoat? Very interesting. Okay. Greek tragedies were not performed just any time. Greek tragedies were only performed once a year at the Dionysian festival, probably about a four-day weekend kind of thing. And three tragedians would each present a trilogy, a trilogy of three plays that are separate, but are all united somehow. The only extant trilogy we have is the Oresteia, though we know that Prometheus Bound was the first of the trilogy, we've lost the other two plays. There would also be what they called a satyr play that was like a little comic parody sort of at the end. And so over this long weekend at the festival, all three trilogies would be presented called tetralogies because they're and they would choose first second and third place and you know lots of times sophocles or aeschylus would win right and they were called tragedies now what does that word mean strong ode so you can recognize the eddy is ode which means song but trog is the greek word for a goat so we have goat song or the song of the goat or i would argue that it may actually really mean the song of the scapegoat, because lots of the greatest Greek tragic heroes are scapegoats. Now, that's not a word that we're going to see in Greek tragedy. That's a word that we're getting from the book of Leviticus, right? So in the ancient Jews, again, both the ancient Jews and the ancient Greeks understood that sin was not only an individual thing, but it was a corporate thing. So you might have a guilt on the community. And during Yom Kippur, that's the high holy day, Jews still celebrate it. Though today, because there's no temple, it is a bloodless sacrifice. So Jews still do Yom Kippur. But before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, Yom Kippur was essentially linked to animal sacrifice. And a lot of people don't realize, if you read Leviticus carefully, at Yom Kippur, the high priest, there was a sacrifice, but it was a double sacrifice. There was actually two goats. What Sometimes one was an ox, but one goat was actually sacrificed, you know, and its blood put on the altar. But the other goat, the high priest would put his hand on the goat's head and richly transfer the guilt of the people on to the goat. But that second goat, rather than being killed, would be exiled, quite literally kicked out of the community and sent out into the wilderness. And so that was the escape goat, which in the King James becomes scapegoat, the one that bears away the sins of the community. Now, I say quickly here, 
the Greeks don't actually have a concept of sin because you can't have a concept of sin unless you have a holy God that you're measuring that against. And anybody that knows a lick about Greek mythology knows the Greek gods are anything but holy, anything but a standard. But even the Greeks and Romans understood the idea of guilt. They understood the idea, we still use the word, of taboo guilt. It really comes from South Sea Islanders or something. But they understood the idea that there were certain sins like incest, or patricide, the killing of a father, matricide, the killing of a mother, fratricide, the killing of a brother. There were certain forbidden knowledge. There were certain sins or taboo crimes, let's call them, that brought a sense of guilt on the people that needed somehow to be expiated. And when they performed the Dionysian ritual in the center of the stage where the chorus was, there was a statue to Dionysus, to Bacchus. Uh, so we know that they were done in his honor. Uh, and so that that link to the scapegoat, the 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 one that bears the ritual guilt, is clearly linked to tragedy throughout the, the, the tragedians. We better come on and look at this particular play, which is one of three. Um, the other two are lost, aren't they? I think um, this Prometheus bound. Uh, who is Prometheus, and to what extent is he? depicted as a scapegoat and indeed to what extent is he depicted as suffering from hubris ah very good now he is a, a fascinating figure prometheus there are some stories in which prometheus is a man but in almost all the stories in the most ancient legends he is a titan first there were the primal deities of of sky and earth uranos and gaia they produced the race of titans the titans were the ones that gave birth to what we call the olympian gods Zeus and Apollo and Hera and Athena and the ones we know, Poseidon and all that, Hades. So the Titans are the, 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 the middle group, and then the Olympians are the younger group, but the Olympians end up being more powerful. Now, at one point, Kronos, who's the, the head of the, uh, uh, of the uh, Titans, he gained control by overthrowing his father, Uranus. And he was at first good, but Prometheus felt like Kronos, once he sees power, was becoming more tyrannical. And so when Zeus, the son of Kronos, wanted to take control, Prometheus actually took his side and helped him to win. But then Zeus started getting more tyrannical. Now, there are actually two reasons that Prometheus was punished. One reason is he knew the name of the goddess who would bear a son to Zeus who would overthrow him. And because he was now mad at Zeus, he refused to divulge the name. But there's another reason. It's the one that's better known and is at the center of it. Well, both of them are at the center of the play. And that is that as Zeus was becoming more cruel, he treated the new human race cruelly and would not help us. Particularly, he would not give us the gift of fire. He kept it to himself. Prometheus, who was a lover of man and who was angry at Zeus, decided to put himself at risk and steal the fire from Zeus to give it to man. So he is a benefactor of man. Now, obviously, fire allows us to cook our food, to warm our homes, to ward off wild animals. But fire means more than that in the myth, and especially in the play, Aeschylus wrote Prometheus Bound. 
it is also the crucible of creativity. Without fire, there is no woodworking, no metal making, no glass blowing. In a sense, all pottery, all of it is coming out of the gift of fire. And in the play, Prometheus claims not only to have given us the gift of creativity, but to have taught us things like language and agriculture and stuff like that. So Prometheus is the friend of man. Well, to punish Prometheus for giving man the fire, and also to punish him for not divulging the name. By the way, Prometheus is two Greek words that mean forethought. So that's why Prometheus knows the future. His name means forethought. By the way, he had a brother named Epimetheus, whose name means afterthought, and he's the guy that married Pandora, the little girl with the box. But that's another story. Uh, Prometheus was a little bit brighter. Um, anyway, so to punish Prometheus, Zeus came up with the most horrific of punishments. He took him, stripped him naked, took him to the Caucasus Mountain. That's the, the border between uh, Europe and Asia. And he literally crucified him on a rock in the Caucasus Mountains. Every morning, a giant eagle, sometimes it's a vulture, a giant eagle would come and peck at the defenseless Prometheus and devour his liver. But every night, the liver would grow back so the next morning, the eagle would come and tear it out again. Now, Brent, many people think that this eagle is a myth, but that eagle exists in my country. We call it the IRS or the Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> they allow our money to grow back. Then they come and devour it as they just did. April 15th just passed. And then they let it grow again. What What is your tax people called in New Zealand? Uh, very similar, the IRD. Oh, IRD, Internal Revenue Department, I guess. Yes, which yeah, which leads to some very Promethean responses from citizens oh, of the country. Oh, there we go. I, I'm <laughs> sure your taxes are much worse than mine. I, I'm sure I can take that for granted. But the, uh, wow. So here is Prometheus suffering on behalf of man. So oddly, he's a Christ figure. He's always literally crucified on the rock. But, and this is the crazy thing about Prometheus, from a Christian point of view, Prometheus is a very odd mixture of Christ and Satan, how is he like Satan? He rebelled against the rightful God, Jupiter or Zeus, uh, in the same way that Satan rebelled against Yahweh, against God. And he has this satanic energy that refuses to serve. And even though he is a noble character and a sufferer, a true philanthropist, friend of man, literally, in the play, Aeschylus shows us that he is also flawed. He is a man that, like most Greek tragic heroes, suffers from hubris, their word for pride, or sometimes we say overweening pride. And Prometheus is one of these people who, like, he suffers, but he almost takes pride in his suffering. Nobody else can suffer the way that I do. I mean, we all know, oddly enough, that some of the most insufferable people, smug, self-righteous people, are philanthropists and benevolent people. I'm sure you have a lot of them in your country, right? Oh, you know, people that like protect your island by closing it off from the rest of the world. You know what I'm talking about, costing you lots and lots and lots and lots of money, but we won't go there. Uh, but those people can be very insufferable. They're, they're the, you know, the great white savior, you know, who's going to come in. Th those are people that usually are, are woke, but they are the great white savior. Um, and so Prometheus, and if you ever read Antigone, Antigone and Sophocles, very noble character, but she also has a, a level of pride 
that only she can do this. So I, I think it's a very well-rounded portrait. You know, he's, he, after all, isn't Christ. He is, he's flawed because uh, the gods are flawed there as well. But ultimately, he is a scapegoat suffering on behalf of man and the gift that he gave to man. Yes, we'll come on to talk about the parallels with Jesus further, because there's a fabulous quote from Hermes, isn't there? There's a prophecy given by Hermes in the play. I'm going to quote the lines in, in, because it's just unbelievable. I just, you know, I it, well, think it, I made it up. It wasn't in the book. You probably checked on me because it's almost unbelievable. <laughs> it, it, it is in the book, yes. Yeah, um, it actually is in there. And, and it is in the play as well, yeah. I mean, the play, it's but, in the play. Previously. Yeah, but can I can yeah. I just come on, because um, Shelley, the, the English poet, yes. Lucy Shelley, also had a take, if I can put it like that, on Prometheus yes. and wrote his own, his was called Prometheus Unbound, wasn't it? Right. But it's a very strange view of the uh, Promethean legend. Do, do you think Shelley fundamentally misunderstood the Greek play? I think he did. I mean, I, th I think... He took the archetype and used it in a way that it can be used, but it's certainly not true to what Aeschylus wanted. Now, we said before we don't have play two and three, but we know from clues in the play and whatnot that the end of the play would end with the reconciliation of Jupiter and Prometheus. Jupiter would unilaterally free him, and in response, Prometheus would divulge the name. The name, by the way, was Thetis, who instead was married to a mortal man named Peleus and gave birth to Achilles, who almost destroyed the human realm with his wrath or his rage. Um, so that's what would have happened. And I, I, we don't know for sure, but I think, Brent, I think if we had all of the, um, all of the trilogies intact, I personally believe all of them would have had some kind of happy ending of reconciliation between the divine as the Oresteia ends. I can't prove that, but we, we, we do know that, uh, Prometheus, I'm sorry, Sophocles went back to the to the Oedipus le uh, legend at the end of his life and wrote something called Oedipus at Colonus, which is clearly the end of another trilogy that also ends with the reconciliation of the divine and the human man and God. But Shelley, he couldn't understand that because he did not want anything to his mind as horrible as the reconciliation of the oppressor and the oppressed. We might call him the first woke person. Okay, in the sense that they can never come together. There is no forgiveness. There's no ability to come together. There's no change, right? Uh, so in his play, Prometheus, okay, Prometheus bound, he calls it Prometheus unbound, that in the play, Jupiter is torn down from his throne and Prometheus ushers us in to a, you know, sort of utopia world of perfect singing. Now, to give him credit, he does come up with a very good insight, and that is that it's not Prometheus himself that tears Jupiter down from his throne, because Shelley was wise enough to know that if he did that, he would have become the new tyrant. So there is depth to it, but he just can't understand how there can be reconciliation. I mean, that is the amazing thing of the gospel, right? That 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 that, that they can be. Uh, you know, that there could be forgiveness and repentance and whatnot. But Shelley, you know, he was too much of a revolutionary. And he was he was very much a child of the French Revolution. Yes, I really feel that. Yeah, I felt when I reread bits of it that it was really sort of a cover for his atheism, too, that yeah. um, he was it having really to bash at Jupiter and yeah, tear down the gods. That's right. It, it, sort of the, He's the real romantic hero. He turns Prometheus into a real romantic hero. But very and, different. You know, I, should mention, I should mention quickly, Brent, that that the romantics, particularly uh, Shelley and Blake, who were the more extreme romantics, they, like all romantic poets, they loved Milton's Paradise Lost. Mm. But 
Interestingly, Shelley and Blake, both when they went back and reread the play, they decided the real hero of Paradise Lost was Satan because he's the one that had the satanic energy that refused to serve, that fought against Jehovah, whom they saw as a tyrant. Uh, and, uh, and, and in fact, Shelley... He, <laughs> Shelley, in the preface to Prometheus Unbound, says that Milton's Satan is morally superior to his Jehovah. <laughs> and Blake said that, that Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it, which is why his Satan is more exciting than his Jesus or his God. <laughs> I think Milton would have had quite quite a lot to say yeah. about that, actually. And, but um... Do you know, Brent, if, if, if somebody wrote a book to try to get back to a proper reading of Paradise Lost. It might be called The Preface to Paradise Lost by our very own C.S. Lewis. Yes. So he wrote a book, A Preface to Paradise Lost, and still read today. It's a very good book that, you know, tries to reread Milton on his own terms hmm. and not say something so absurd that a traitor could be the hero. He could be an anti-hero, but certainly not the hero. <laughs> yeah, I, lo I love Milton. I love Paradise Lost. We, can we come and talk about... Um, Eo is it? Is she pronounced Eo? Usually Io. Io, sorry. At least in American English, we okay, say Io. Io. Yeah. yeah. In what ways are both Prometheus and Io scapegoats? Because she's been scapegoated as well, hasn't she? This is a very interesting thing, and this character does not appear in Shelley in Shelley's play, right? Uh, there, there, there are parts where 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 uh, where Prometheus speaks to different characters that come and talk to him, Poseidon and Hermes and stuff like that. But in the middle of the play, something happens that you're not expecting. There's a character named Io. And, you know, Zeus has a rather wild extracurricular love affair. And he's always seducing these earthly women who are then punished by Zeus's wife, Hera. Right? He always blame, blames the lady. And Io was somebody that he seduced. And when he saw his wife coming to hide her, he turned her into a cow. Right? And then... And then uh, Hera kind of suspected it. So she took the cow and put it in her pasture and had it guarded and all this sort of stuff. Well, in the end, poor Io is chased away with this, you might call it a gadfly. It's almost like the Furies, this gadfly chasing her to run away and run away and run away. And she herself is a sort of scape. She is a female scapegoat and Prometheus is a male scapegoat for the tyranny of Zeus at this point. He will eventually become a, uh, a a just and civilized God, but partly through what's going on here with it. And so she's being chased, unable to stop. Same thing happens to Orestes, really, in the, in the play. But uh, let me, Io would eventually go to Egypt and become the mother of the pharaohs. And one of her descendants in the 13th generation would be Hercules, or Heracles, as the Greeks called him. And Hercules would be the one appointed to break the chain, kill the eagle, break the chain, and set free Prometheus. Sort of amazing story. But again, what we see are two people that have been, uh, Io and Prometheus, mistreated by unjust authority, and they suffer that in their body, but it will lead to reconciliation when Io's descendant will set free Prometheus and usher in a civilized Zeus. Yeah, she's a beautifully written character, yeah. Io, I think, and Prometheus sympathizes with her and helps yes. her, goes out of his way to help her, um, because yeah. he can foresee what will happen to her, doesn't he? We've only got about a few minutes left. Let well, me better deal with, Hermes. We'd better deal with Hermes, yes, Hermes' okay. prophecy. Now, I've got it written here, and Good. on this page, this is what Hermes prophesies about Prometheus. 
and of this pain do not expect an end until some god shall show himself successor to take your torches for himself and willingly go down to lightless Hades and the shadows of Tartarus depths. Now that is, to my mind, is quite staggering. That's written 500 really years before Jesus. Yep. Yeah. And, and what's now on the literal level, okay, Hercules would be the one to set him free. And Hercules, most people know that there were these things called the 12 labors of Hercules. One of the labors of Hercules was to go to Hades, the underworld, and kidnap Cerberus, who is the three-headed hound of hell. And he put a noose around him and took him back up to the air. He let him go back down. Now, here's the cool thing. So this was, okay, this is one of these things that's not 100% clear in scripture, but most people believe that it appears in what we call the Apostles' Creed, that in between Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection, what was he doing in between? Well, the belief is that maybe Holy Saturday or early Sunday morning, Jesus went down into hell, broke down the doors of hell, and rescued the righteous people of the Old Testament. Adam, Eve, Moses, Abraham, uh, David, Solomon, uh, leading up to John the Baptist, and took these people up with him to heaven. That event is known as the harrowing of hell. Now, here's this crazy thing. It, 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 it is Hercules, right? The one who will harrow hell will set you free. But again, as you read it, it says, until God shall show himself successor to take your tortures for himself. Mm. That's not exactly what Hercules does. And willing, go down to lightly's Hades and the shadows of Tartarus. Now, here's something cool. Hades in the Greek world is really like Sheol. Hades itself is not a place of torment. It's just kind of miserable, uh, Everybody walks around. There's no life. There's a, in America we call this Detroit. Um, <laughs> they walk around with 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 no hope of any kind, right? But the Greeks, for all Detroit, for Detroit, for I've never been to Detroit. Detroit. What what is the Detroit of New Zealand? Oh, <laughs> oh! Now I'm going to get my, I'll get myself into oh. trouble if I ventured any to to even answer that question. Um, okay, you, maybe the answer is Australia. I'm, Australia. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, all right, we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so the uh, but the Greeks understood that way, way down deep in Hades was a place called Tartarus. And that's where the punishments were for the evil criminals, right? And also that's where the rebellious Titans were chained by Zeus when they were rebellious. Now, here's something cool. In the New Testament, I'm gonna talk about it. in the New Testament. Half the time Jesus talks about hell, or he uses the word Hades, which is the equivalent of Sheol. The other half, he says Gehenna, right? That horrible place where they sacrificed babies. It was like a burning. But one time and only one time in the whole New Testament did we not get Hades or Gehenna, we get Tartarus. And that's when Peter said that, you know, the rebellious angels were locked up in Tartarus. It's the only time it's used. Now, people used to think it was a reference to the angels that rebelled with Satan. But more people today, me agreed, think it's actually uh, Genesis 6, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, slept with them, gave birth to the giants, and it seems to be them, think of the book of Enoch, the watchers who are chained, the, the Nephilim who are chained down in there. But whatever it is, it's unbelievable. The only time in scripture that Tartarus is used, and here, Aeschylus, 500 years early, 
is using Tartarus as a place of, of that, that will be harrowed, that will be broken in. And we've got this idea of another scapegoat who will actually break down the doors of hell, we would say, to save his bride. It gives me tingles when I think about it. It's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. And um, hopefully we can talk again uh, and do some more, probably better do some Sophocles. Um, oh, this is time. great stuff. It's all great. Uh, please, I'd love you to come back and talk to us about, about Oedipus Rex and some of the other, Antigone so. and some of the others. Lewis Marcos, Professor of English at Houston Baptist University, and um, his book, I've got it here. Uh, it's From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics. There it is, uh, published by IVP. I've had it on my shelf, uh, I don't know, well over, and, well over a decade. And that book has sort of two sequels. One is called From Plato to Christ, mm. uh, and the other one is The Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes. Did we talk about that one? We have done yeah. interviews on both, and people yeah, uh, are listening. If you're listening to this this current podcast we you're, right. you're listening to now, if you scroll back through our back episodes, you'll find very early on, I think, I think you're in episodes three and four. Yeah, we did those. That's what I, I thought. Th I think episodes three and four, Lewis, you're on really, really early on doing Myth Made Fact and um, from, from Plato to, to Christ. Yeah. From and I'll tell your listeners now that IVP wants me to do one more book called From Aristotle to Christ. Oh, you should. And so I'm going to start. Yeah, Aristotle is a little bit drier than Plato. Uh, oh, but you've I'm got to. to go through all of that and, and because that's another one, hugely influential, particularly on our views of things like morality and virtue. Very, I think Aristotle was fanta a fantastic philosopher. Great mind. Um, it's like he came out of nowhere, this mind out of nowhere. Yeah. Great oh, you've got, no, you've got to. I'm, I'm thrilled about that. I, I hope that that goes ahead and um, it, it, that, that should be fantastic. We'll look forward to that one. So um, until we meet again, Lewis, thank you yep. so much. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.